Welcome, welcome everybody. I'm your host, Jared Bowman, and this is Biblically Speaking, the podcast. As always, I am here with my good buddy and co-host, Brian Tiberius Haynes. For Bear Summoner, to those of you that follow the program regularly, hey, this audience is growing. I actually had a couple of people call me, today, or not today, but over the past week to tell me, Brian, that they're really getting a lot out of these episodes. We actually have a larger following on YouTube, believe it or not, than we do on the regular podcast airways. But uh, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. Uh, by the way, I guess we should tell the audience, Tiberius isn't exactly my middle name, but I like to play with it, you know, like James T. Kirk. <laughs> I think you should. I, th- I think you should go for it. <laughs> there you go. Ser- seriously, though, we've done a lot of heavy episodes lately, and today we wanted to do one that's just a little bit more fun, a little bit more engaged with maybe some light Bible study, some things that you can go home and ponder with your own Bible. And today we are talking about verses that get misused all the time. Now, we had some criteria. We were sort of brainstorming in the pre-show. Brian and I came with our own lists. We whittled this down. The criteria was these either had to be verses that people regularly asked us about or things that we see constantly misused, either in discussions or online. And I'm going to kick this off with one that I see misused all the time, and that has got to be Matthew chapter 7. Now, Brian, I'm sitting here judging you right now. I'm, I'm judging how, you because you are wearing glasses. You don't do the How work dare the you? How dare you judge me? Jesus said, you're not to judge me. Oh, he did. Well, let's take a look at that. I'm going to put this up on screen. Let's read this together for those of you that are watching on YouTube. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. The text says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. Seems pretty clear to me. Don't judge so that you won't be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So what's going on in this passage? I mean, this is, I can't tell you how many times somebody has been in a conversation where they're discussing elements of someone else's life that needs to change, and this is supposed to be the end all of the discussion. You can't judge me. Uh, I see this a lot of times in tattoos. Only God can judge me. It's usually accompanied with a tattoo that says no regrets or something like that. (laughs) But I actually saw a guy that had a tattoo that said no (laughs) regrets. I thought, ooh, that's a huge regret. Yes, it is. uh, But what's going on here in this passage, Brian? Let's talk a little bit about what Jesus has been saying, what he's actually saying within this context, and what he's going to go on to say. I'm going to let you, since I read it, I'm going to let you go ahead and key up the discussion. Yeah. Well, we're in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. It's telling us all about the kingdom that Jesus has come to establish. This is what kingdom people look like. Yeah, this is what kingdom people look like. I mean, whether it's the Beatitudes, whether it's the actions that they that that they behave in, how they pray, how they fast, all the different things. This is this is the kingdom. Um, so chapter seven rolls up and Jesus starts talking about how we interact with others and our behavior with others. And Jesus says to us that statement we just read, judge not uh that you not be judged. Now, <clears throat> of course, ironically. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, Jesus tells us all the ways we're going to be judged. He says, you're going to be judged by every uh, idle word you utter. Uh, You're going to be judged by every action you do. You're going to be judged by the thoughts and intent of your heart. Um, So there's something really wrong if Jesus is saying on the one hand, hey, in my kingdom, nobody gets judged. No judgments. As long as you don't judge Mm -hmm. anybody. That's really the only thing I'm looking for. Or... Uh, on the other side, Jesus says you're going to be judged for a lot of things that you're going to be held responsible and accountable for. We'd have a we'd have a a, a a real certifiable contradiction of Scripture if in one place Jesus is saying you, all you have to do not to be judged is not judge anyone, and the rest of the New Testament says, hey, there's a lot of things you got to do, and you will be judged uh, for the things you say and do. Yeah, it's a massive, it's even a massive inconsistency within the Sermon on the Mount, if that's what he was actually saying, because you go back to the prayer in the sixth chapter, 
And what is he saying? That it that uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And then he, at the end of this example of a, of a prayer that's not vain repetition, which is kind of interesting. We could do a whole episode on how that prayer has become vain repetition. <laughs> but he actually, he actually has this aside that he stops and sort of pauses the Sermon on the Mount and says, look, the way that you forgive other people is the way your Heavenly Father is going to forgive you. So inherently, we have had all of these judgment statements within the Sermon on the Mount. You know, don't, don't look at a woman with lust in your heart and you if you do you've already committed adultery that that's that's a judgment statement you know don't be angry with your brother it's the you know if you're angry with him without cause then 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 you're guilty of murder that's a judgment statement so we've had all of these statements of judgment so the immediate context before this Jesus is telling them don't worry about today don't worry or about tomorrow Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And you can almost imagine somebody in the, standing there going, okay, well, I know other people that aren't seeking the righteousness of God. I, I know a lot of people who don't who aren't living the way that you're saying. And, and it's almost like Jesus is sort of reading their mind and going, okay, don't go applying this to everybody else before you apply it to yourself. Because what comes after this is reminding them to do unto others as they would have done unto, the, unto them the example of God's goodness being a good father. And then, of course, right after that, he goes directly into the statement on the broad and the narrow way and how few there are they are going to enter by that narrow way. And so this statement is really sort of just nested in this idea of, apply the kingdom gospel to yourself first, right? Right on. And and that really is where Jesus is going with this. Because if you read the passage and you consider it that, you realize Jesus is actually commanding us to make judgments, but not yeah. our judgments, his judgments. I mean, look at what he says in verse six. I'm not gonna put this up on the screen. Here's the judgment right here, though. Mm -hmm. Do not give what is holy to the dogs and do not throw out your pearls before swine so, or they will trample them under their foot and turn and tear you into pieces. So he's actually saying, look, there are people that that before you before you go and hector somebody with this kingdom message of you're not doing what you ought to be doing you need and we talked about this passage a few weeks ago you need to stop and consider are they in a position where they're going to hear this or are you just making an adversary because you're telling them something they don't want to hear and you have to you have to make that judgment yourself so I mean, right there the very next statement is make a judgment is this person using the term swine and dog is not a pejorative there he's just saying how are they going to receive it is it going to be like like trying to give a a pearl to a pig kind of thing, it's, it's a judgment. He's yeah. right there. He's saying you kind of make a judgment. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's profound. And I always say when somebody says, "Oh, you shouldn't judge people," I say, "Is that what you tell your kids whenever you know the stranger pulls up in the van and says, hey, get in my van'? Do you say, kids, don't judge? You know, if you want to get in that van, that's okay. You no, know, you judge every single day. Only a fool." doesn't judge things. Everybody judges. You you couldn't yeah. make it in life if you didn't have judgment. Um, you, you couldn't make it an hour if you didn't no. use some kind of judgment. Right. I mean, how else do you... Anytime we tailor the gospel, the, the the approach that we take with the gospel message, this person, I need to start here. This person, I need to start over here. You're making a judgment. You're making a judgment based on... a. a I'm not going to take somebody that's never heard about God and push them off in the deep end of predestination before I've talked to them about it. in the beginning, God's the creator of the heavens and the earth. Yeah. Well, what did I do? I made a judgment. Yeah. Judgments are not wrong. Or when people throw out this passage, not necessarily at us, they're trying to indicate some kind of hypocrisy without really being able to sustain that charge. Right. And, and oftentimes, this isn't about the rightness or the fitness of the judgment. It's about, I just don't want to hear it. I want to be clear to say, yeah. Jesus is calling it in verse uh, verse uh, six, a pearl. It's something valuable. It's something useful. Judgment is not, you know, bitterness. It's it's value given to somebody else. And that without, you know, we need to appreciate that idea, but its value is never going to be understood, even by us, if we haven't applied it to ourselves first. Disregarding any judgment just because we don't like the source of it. And more often than not, it's not that we don't like the source of it, it's that we don't like the judgment itself, is just as foolish as trying to judge without that kind of personal discernment. That having 
integrity in our judgments. It's not saying that you've got to be perfect to be able to judge. In fact, we're going to do an episode in a few weeks. I thought you had a great idea in a discussion we were having last Friday on the idea of perfection versus diligence, and can Christians really ever be perfect? That uh, the, the idea is not that you are without, perfectly without sin, and therefore you can render judgment. You need to be careful in how you render judgment. I think about Galatians chapter 6, where Paul says in verse 1, if any of you is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So it's not just can I make the judgment? Do I have the right to make the judgment? It's how am I making that judgment? Am I doing it in a self-serving, pharisaical, uh, hypocritical sort of way, or am I really doing it with their best interest at heart? All right. Well, I think I think we probably beat that horse well enough. So. Yeah. And, and <laughs> I thankfully, mean, I'd, lo- I'd love to hear some comments yeah. on that. So if yes. you guys have got some thoughts on that verse, maybe you think we missed something there, then go ahead and toss it out. But let me get the uh, the next one pull, pulled up, Brian, and I'll let you introduce it. I think. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's a passage that, that I see a lot of uh, times is a, a inspirational passage, so to speak, something that people say and uh, trying to, to get a, a positive feeling. And certainly nothing wrong with that. But let's look at the passage. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Paul makes a statement, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are, uh, who are the called according to his purpose. There's an interesting statement there, isn't there? And some people look at that statement and say, you know what? Everything that happens to me, I'm, I'm one of God's people, and everything that happens to me is happening because God is uh, doing something good for me. You know, something something great is going to happen. Uh, mm-hmm. And that the things that go on in my life, all of them are good things. All of them are because God yeah. wants something good for me. Yeah. That, and I mean, how often does this get spun into like the health and wealth doctrine? Yeah. How often does you know, the prosperity gospel? I mean, I, I remember a few years ago in Houston, I can't remember the name of the guy. I don't even know if he was in Houston. I know they were reporting about it on a local news channel there. But there was a some prosperity gospel preacher who was teaching that he needed a new helicopter or blades for his helicopter or something like that. And if you sowed your favor seed with him and it was this much money that God was going to bless you with a new car and this because you were going to become partners with him in the gospel and partners with him in prayer. And I mean, just all of this nonsense that God is using things in your life to bring about good things in your life. What, what's Paul actually talking about in Romans 8? What, what's, the, what's the setup there? You know, and the setup context is always the problem, isn't it? That was the, that was yeah. the problem in Matthew 7. Uh, I think our listeners aren't going to be surprised to find out that almost, or in fact, every misused passage in the Bible is misused yeah. because the context isn't applied. So Paul mm-hmm. is talking about all the different things that God has done to bring about the plan of salvation. The working of Christ, the you know e- even things like the Old Testament. I mean, uh, 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 a well-known preacher I know made a good comment to say that uh, if you want to understand Romans, you have to take verses chapters one through twelve. All is one thing, one idea, and uh, sounds like an intelligent man. Yeah, he, he just a brilliant man, and he made that comment, and that's a great comment because Paul is trying to tell the story of God solving the problem of sin. Uh, mm-hmm. working through the law of Moses, working through a variety of things. And so first and foremost, and this is this is probably a good way of approaching any Bible, we have to kind of define what he means here. Uh, any verse in the Bible should be defined what the terms are. What are right. all things? Well, all things in the context of Romans 8 are the things God had done through the law of Moses, uh, through Jesus Christ, uh, to bring about the plan of salvation. Now, the problem well, is... And in that case, yeah. it was even Paul's struggle with sin in chapter yeah, 7. Wretched man fine. that I am, who will save me from this body of sin and death? That that God was using Paul's aversion to his own sin and frustration that he couldn't be perfect on his own to bring about something good for him in Christ. Yeah, yeah. The problem is that people will take a passage like this and they'll say, well, you know, all things, I, uh, I, I, I like to drink. So God is using my drinking in order to save me. Or mm-hmm. I like, uh, um, I, I, you know, this this thing in my life happened, uh, you know, and I want to believe that that is God. All things are working. So this must be God working in my life when it might be the consequences of sin, uh, which is a pretty big yeah. deal, according to the Bible, which is something that happens a lot. Somebody says, you know what? 
uh, this bad thing happened. Um, well, it must be God working for good things in my life. Well, what if it's because you're not doing things you should be doing and there's a consequence to that? I, I want to share a story about this passage really quickly. It, and this this is my frustration with this passage. But I, I've heard people who were consoling uh, I'm trying to think of the exact scenario. I think they were consoling a grandmother at the death of their grandchild. And they quoted this verse because the, their son or daughter, I'm, try, I'm trying to remember exactly the, the context and where I heard this, was out of duty. And they said, well, maybe this will bring them back to the Lord because God can use all things. Like, wait, whoa, 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 wait a second here. That's that's not exactly what's being talked about here. Mm. And it's actually, did you just blame God for the death of this child? Mm-hmm. It, it kind of sounds like it. And that's really the, rec- it, it, I mean, that ranks up with, right up there with, we know they're in a better place, you know, when you're talking about the, the death. I mean, sometimes the best thing to say at a funeral is nothing, just shut up and be quiet. That's that's my strategy. When I get done, you know, with the service, I just say I'm sorry for your loss, because nothing you're going to say is going to be comforting. They know the passages already and are probably frustrated. It, it, some people are frustrated by them, but that exact scenario I've seen play out more than once with not just this passage but other passages too. Yeah, uh, you know, you and I were talking about another passage that fits this exact same idea. We were talking about Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, where Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And one of the points we're making is that all things, again, if it's left undefined by the context of the passage, somebody's going to say, well, you know what? I, you know, I can do anything. I'm, um, you know, that anything I do is approved by God and whatever I'm doing is approved by God because of yeah. those statements. It gets used in the most ludicrous fashion. I mean, how many times yeah. have you seen a, a player in football or baseball have it written in the eye black under their eyes? It's meant to keep the sweat sure. out of their eyes. Sure. John 3.16 or Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Well, yeah. I guess the first thing we need to look at is what what was Paul actually talking about there? Yeah, you know, Paul was talking about, uh, uh, you know, in a, in a broad context, the Corinthians— uh, you know, being able to rejoice in difficult circumstances and uh, how they mm-hmm. can uh, be remain faithful uh, in trying times. That would probably be the mm-hmm. best de- definition of all things in the context. More Well, and he didn't wa- want them to feel guilty because there was a time when they couldn't support him. And he says, look, mm-hmm. don't worry. I know how to live a base. I I know how to live with abundance. I, I, can, I can live at whatever means I need to because right. Jesus is going to strengthen me. That it's it's not really talking about go out and climb every mountain. Go go climb your Everest because Jesus is going to strengthen you. It's more like Paul is saying, Jesus brought me through the valleys, and and don't worry that you couldn't be there for me. I understand that they had renewed their support for him, and it was actually Philippians is kind of a thank you letter for that. If you really yes, look it at is. it, it's got yes, I mean it's got a lot more to it than that, but. But the sort of the beginning and the end of Philippians is kind of a thank you letter to them. But it's it don't worry that you couldn't support me for a while because you know Jesus was more than enough for me to get through those those difficult times. And it's not about going out and living your best life or conquering some big big personal goal that's out there. It's more about living through the times with your faith intact that are difficult, so that because you believe that. On the other side of that, even if eternity is what's on the other side of it, Jesus is delivering you to somewhere better. Right, right. And of course, uh, you know, in, in a sense, too, we, we want to appreciate that a, that a statement like this is going to be telling us, you know, we can accomplish the things God gives us to accomplish, uh, meaning spiritual yeah. tasks, but not worldly tasks. Right. And that's where, as you said, the football player, the business owner uh, who says, oh, well, you know, uh, Philippians 4, 30, uh, 13, that's my... That's my mantra for my business. The guy that's that has it sewn into his golf bag. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, yeah. and people do it all the time. Make sure they take a spiritual statement. 40, 40 yards further. Yeah, they make a spiritual statement and they give it a, a carnal purpose. And uh, not not at all what he was saying. All right. Since, we're, since this seems to be kind of a running theme in all these passages, let, let's sort of set aside the other passages for just a second. And, and specifically about this passage, Philippians 4.13. To me, the danger in this is... is really twofold. On one hand, you've got your confidence pinned to some measure of physical worldly success. 
your faith in God is pinned to some measure of worldly success there. So even if it's not for you personally, it's just a statement of this is how much I trust God. I'm, I'm going to go out there and start this business. I'm praying about it. But um, you're communicating to the world that God is not going to let that fail. Well, if it fails, then what did you just communicate to them? Yeah. On the fails. other side of that, it sort of reduces our faith in God to something transactional. I'm faithful to him because he's going to give me material success, and that's dangerous. Right. And that's why, it, it, even when you go back to the Matthew 7 passage on judgment, when we use that in a carnal way, then what we are doing is we are we are changing the nature of our faith, and we need to recognize just how dangerous that really is. I'm going to give you a second to talk about that before we move well, on. I, well, one thing I would think of is, like, in the Old Testament, we have uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, you know, that's their right. Babylonian Ananai, names. Mishael, and Azariah. Yeah, that's right. You're, 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 that's how they would have appreciated being known. Um, but the point is that the scriptures say that when they're standing before Nebuchadnezzar, they say, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't know if God's going to deliver us or not. We're still not going to do the you know the wrong thing. Um, they don't say, right. hey, we know that no matter what, God's going to, you know, uh, all things, you know, are going to be happening because God's going to strengthen us. We're going to walk out of this. They said, we don't know. We don't know what God's going to do. Uh, in James four, James says, "Don't don't be somebody who talks about the future and says, I know what's going to happen." He says, "Well, you should say if the Lord wills it, maybe, but you don't know. You don't know what God uh, has planned and purposed, and it's a dangerous thing." Uh, James says it's evil to think that you know what's coming. Well, another passage that's beside this that fits alongside this, that I think really speaks exactly what you're saying that gets misused is when we were talking about the pre-show. I'm going to throw up on the screen here, and it's Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. When you stop and you think about that, that sounds like something. I mean, that's, that's a passage I want on my wall, right? I, I want to have that, you know, cut out of vinyl and just plastered up on my wall. I know the plans that God has for me. The problem with this is, is Jeremiah is talking to people who are about to go into captivity, and he's telling them that this judgment from God is not about your destruction. It's about your deliverance. Now, I think that that fits pretty well with maybe Hebrews 12 in terms of how we how we consider the chastening of the Lord. Right. But he is not promising them wealth at the end of some difficulty. He is telling them the judgment of God is for your good and it's going to to chastise you and chasten you back towards repentance and you're going to have a better relationship with God when it's all over. And this is something that I, mean, I can't tell you how many quote unquote pastors I've seen this with this verse tattooed right here on their arm. You know, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. I'm like, dude, you really need to just go read that passage beforehand. But not understanding that this is about embracing what God is doing in His discipline and coming to repentance is a huge swing and a miss for this verse. I mean, yeah. it's not that we can't say, I know the plans that God has for me, but we need to understand this is about enduring judgment and enduring discipline, not deliverance from hardship. I think an important idea, too, is to think about the idea of what God is saying about plans. Um, we can yeah. think of the plan of salvation. God has a plan for us, the plan of salvation. But you know what we can do? Mm -hmm. We can wreck it. We can wreck it by not obeying it, not walking in it. When God says, I have plans for you, that doesn't mean God's saying, I'm going to make everything work out no matter what you do, because that's what the point, as you said, that's what the point of this letter is. You guys, I have a plan for you, you know, not, not to say I'm going to make it happen, but here's the plan. You're going to go to Babylon. You're going to live in captivity. When the time's up, you're going to come back. Those are a lot of those things are choices they need to make. If they don't mm -hmm. choose to come back, then God's plan for them won't give them a future and hope. You know, if they don't choose yeah, how are to, you going to live in Babylon? That's right. I mean, that's right. And he gives really them directions. All about that. Yeah, actually, that's actually the context of the chapter. He's giving them directions how they're mm -hmm. supposed to live in Babylon. If they do what yeah. God says, then they have a future and hope. And I think that's maybe the big disconnect in all of these passages is that God's plans for us, God's bringing things together for us is always contingent on our pursuit, seeking, obeying God. 
Always. It's not okay, just so, that God's going to do it. Right. Let's summarize exactly what you said there. So, so three contingencies. Number one, uh, discipline is involved in, in at least two of the three passages. That n- Number two, it is contingent upon man's willingness to seek God's plan. Number two. So, and number three, it is, there's a, there's a measure of personal accountability there. Yeah. You know, Paul yeah. was personally accountable in Philippians 4 for the work that God had given him to do. He was personal, personally accountable for his sin in Romans 7, Romans 8. I know God is causing all things to work together for the good of them who love the Lord. That that you get over to Jeremiah 29, you need to be personally accountable to God when you go into Babylonian captivity. And think about how this fits with maybe a passage like we discussed last week, Ezekiel 18, that the, you know, you're not allowed to say this proverb anymore, that the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. There's a personal accountability. You need to learn the lesson of why you're in captivity because God, and then you need to want to come out of that captivity, not, not go off and identify with the Babylonians. You need to want to come out of that captivity when it's time, because when you do, God has got something better for you in terms of the relationship that you have with him now versus the relationship you can have with him then. And all of these things, we we sort of put it all on God and ignore the individual accountability that we have to his plan. Yes. Um, uh, you know, a great passage that seems that, that really needs to be remembered to this, in Luke chapter 7 and verse 30, there's a very simple statement made. It says, the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John, by John the Baptist. Um, I've always, that's a profound statement. God, the will of God, we can call that the plan of God. I think nobody would disagree that 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 could be fit nicely there. The Pharisees Mm -hmm. and lawyers rejected God's plan for them by not being baptized by John the Baptist. Um, and, And so that's every one of these passages has a context and a condition and a great example is that the Pharisee and the lawyers rejected God's plan for them. They turned aside from yeah. it because they did not do what he said to do. Well, and right there in the middle of it is an awesome discussion that we could have on what the sovereignty of God actually looks like. Yeah, that actually a is a great passage, yeah. For another for another episode of Biblically Speaking. Hey, if audience, if you haven't checked it out yet, there is a poll up on our YouTube channel on the community, community notes site. So go to community and check out the poll there. Uh, we have, I think, five different options for future topics. We got a couple of them that are sort of pulling out in front of the others uh, for future topics of these podcasts. And there's a comment section. So if we didn't think of one that you specifically would like to hear an episode on, drop it in the comments there. But uh, I think it's an excellent time to bring that up. Anytime I think of, of a show idea in the middle of these, I meant to I mean to say that to the audience. So if you've got something, be sure to check us out at YouTube. We're you know, the Biblically Speaking channel there. Be sure to check us out. You'll see the logo. It's right here on screen for those of you that are on the YouTube channel. That um, Be sure to check us out there and leave a comment as to what kind of show you would like us to do. But the next set of verses, Brian, and I think we've absolutely got to get into... And I'm I'm gonna read this one, but this one was really your baby. You really yeah. wanted to talk about this one. I think it's a great verse. Let me go ahead and get it pulled up here so the audience can see it. Uh, but if you're turning in your Bible because you're listening to the podcast, we're gonna go over to Matthew chapter 18. Uh, this is not one I even thought about for the show, so I was glad that you brought it up because. Um, I just saw because somebody get, bring I, this one up today. Uh, I was reading through some comments that somebody said on, on it might have been Facebook, and uh, they threw this out there and said, hey, look, fortunately, I don't have to go to church, uh, our, our term for worshiping, because right. Matthew 18, verse 20. Yeah. That uh, beginning, in, or actually, spec up to verse 19. Again, I say to you that if two or three agree on on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them. I think we could do, we could actually split this up into two. Yeah, we actually so could. Two actually, that would be agree good on anything God has to do it for them. It's going to be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. And then the, the verse that gets to your point, for where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am in their midst. So 
two big misconceptions come out of this. The first is that if if there's an agreement between any two Christians on earth that God has got to has got to have either already approved that or he is yeah. bound yeah. to approve that because Jesus said so there. And then where two or three are gathered together that that constitutes a church and a worship service. Therefore, if Brian and I want to go fishing on a Sunday morning, I I, yeah. I don't fish. I think Brian fishes, but if we wanted to I go do. deer hunting on a Sunday morning, I as don't. long as we had uh, as long as we we were together, yeah. then we were technically a church. Yeah. Boy, there's all kinds of problems with that, isn't there? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah let's, would, start with the, you know, let's start with the first half of that. Can we yeah. really bind God to our will in that way? What, what? What's hugely problematic about that? Thought? What an incredible idea, right? Uh, that uh, that yeah. if two or three people can agree on something, you know, it's bound on earth, you know, that uh, somehow it's bound uh-huh. in heaven. God you know, uh, well, God, we all voted on this. And of course, you know, lots of churches today vote on all sorts of things. We all voted. <laughs> yeah, we took a vote and Satan doesn't exist anymore. You know, I, uh, I, I read that a couple of years ago on a denominational site. Um, that's crazy talk. But you know what? People might turn to this and say, hey, look at this. Look at this statement. Um, no, it's this second verse that I hear a lot of people that I think should have better sense coming up with this one and yeah. saying, hey, guess what? You know what? Last week I went camping with a, with a, well, he was kind of a crazy guy, but, uh, you know, he is my brother in Christ. And, you know, I could have said, hey, you know what? I heard We're he gonna... knows a lot about Romans. Yeah. Yeah. He knows a lot about Romans. He's the crazy guy that said, you know, Romans one through 12 should be seen as one text. Uh, but, uh, you know, Hey, you know, we're together. We're, you know, why go back for Sunday to join the saints? Uh, let's just call it here and make this our church, make this uh, our place, because Jesus said we could. Um, what a what an idea! If he said that, you need to smack him on the back of his head. Yeah, my friend. <laughs> by the way, that's the one I need to smack. Yeah, you know? yeah, uh, yeah. My my friend. Yeah, yeah my I mean, friend. How many time? How many times have we heard exactly that thought? Right. I, I right. mean, we're we're obviously joking about that, but but I mean, you do hear it all the time. You said you yeah. saw it today on a Facebook Just today. post. I've heard people pray that. I've heard people pray that in the middle of of just some instance where they wanted to yeah. to call what they were doing a church. You know, Lord, we yeah. know where two or three are gathered in your name, that you're in their midst. Now, both of these statements are next to one another, so that should tell us that they share a context. Yeah. And the context here in Matthew 18 is actually about exercising discipline against somebody who says they belong that they are following God but are not. And so give us a little background into that and let's figure out how these what these two passages have to do with that. Well, and one thing I like to uh, I like to say is that uh, you know Jesus has been talking about the discipline of the church but I, uh-huh. I always like to point out that maybe there's a more specific context than even that, because Jesus makes the statement in verse 18, whatever you bind on earth, well, who's he talking to? He's talking to his apostles. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound mm-hmm. in heaven. Now, right away, probably probably most Bible students will say, hey, I heard that before. You did, just two chapters before. When Peter mm-hmm. made the confession of Christ, he said, I'm Peter, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, he says. And and to whom are we speaking? Well, we're frankly, first and foremost, talking to apostles. Um, apostles who are going to be delivering the law of Christ. And that Jesus is trying to convey the idea that they are going to be testifying of the things that Jesus has taught. Whatever they bind was bound in heaven. Whatever they're teaching was already given to them by God. They're not to teach anything that wasn't given to them by God, which speaks first and foremost to the idea that they could, even the apostles couldn't just agree on something. We know that um, in Galatians chapter 2, Peter, Barnabas, James, John, they were all caught up in, in a division over whether or not to have, it sounds like to have the Lord's Supper with Gentiles in the church, uh, whether or not they could eat with Gentiles. And Paul rebukes all of these people. Well, guess what? These were apostles who had come together and in agreement, and yet it was still wrong. So that implies, first and foremost, that if it's not the will of God, even apostles could not bind something that had not first been bound in heaven. So first and foremost, we need to appreciate there's no statement here that says a group of Christians can bind something. We can't. We Even apostles had to bind only the things that God had given. But perhaps the second important idea is that this is the language of, 
of apostleship. And the apostles, as they're back at Matthew 16, Jesus is saying, you guys are going to have a specific authority. Two or three of you together, um, there, there's that authority. Well, we go back and we say, we, we see times where Acts chapter 15, uh, Acts chapter 6, the apostles make determinations uh, and they don't do it alone. They're doing it um, as a group mm -hmm. coming together. Um, that there was an obligation for them to work this way. And of course, we can even talk about the fact they were sent out uh, with others. And the language there is not speaking to a church. In fact, it doesn't say, you know, 18, 19, 20 doesn't bring up the context of church, of the establishment of right. church. Um, just the idea of the, you know, if we, if we want to bind a church to it, verse 17 would be the closest we come. And in that instance, he's saying mm -hmm. that is the church, you know, and that people coming together in my name are the church not the idea that we're just forming a church anytime we want. Mm -hmm. it, it's almost like he's saying that they're going to be the source of, the apostles are going to be the source from Jesus of the judgments that you're going to use for discipline in the future. And it's yeah. sort of supported by the idea that this is this is a fancy Greek term, and I had, I had to look this up to make sure I was right on it. But whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. That sounds like past tense. It's what In Greek, it's called aortis tense, which means past tense, but also ongoing. It's not respective to how far in the past it is or how long it took or if it's fully come to completion yet. So it's almost like saying the judgments that the apostles were going to render on what was sin and what was not sin are coming, have come, and will be coming from Jesus. And therefore, if, if they... If, they were in agreement about these things, then it was it was something they could have confidence in that they, that that came from God. Yeah, and and, and, and that's what we see in Acts fifteen. I was going to say uh, Acts fifteen is a perfect example of that of them yeah. saying this is actually the Holy Spirit revealing this to us as they write that letter mm -hmm. because they had come together, but they even had to study. They even had to uh, to consider these things. It wasn't a joke. They just kind of all came together and you know Ooh, I feel it. They actually had to put effort. The similar or the same effort that we're putting together a lot of times to understand the word of God. So mm -hmm. that was important. Well, and one of the things that I think is interesting about this is you pointed out that this is the same language that gets used for Peter in Matthew chapter 16, right? What did he just say in verse 20? For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am in their midst. That That's showing you that Peter is not some ultimate authority over the apostles here. That, that when they were rendering judgments that... Again, this wasn't, you know, Peter goes out and makes a judgment based on what Peter thinks, and James is going out making judgment based on what James thinks or John thinks right. or whatever. It is, you know, basically they all needed to be able to say the same thing because the Lord was the source of it. And so this is sort of presents a problem for anybody who thinks that Peter had some special papal power over the other right. apostles. That's a lot of that's a lot of alliteration. Papal power over the other apostles. I love alliteration. Power of apostles. <laughs> Yeah, try saying that five times fast. <laughs> but but it really sort of shoots down this idea. So we've got really three big ideas that are being yeah. dismantled here. One is you can bind your judgments on God because you agree. And that's something that gets used a lot. Yeah, There's but a can't lot do it. of people who, who use those judgments to, to say what is and isn't sin anymore. I know that's sort of the excuse for kind of the different ecumenical, not ecumenical, but, but uh, councils that the different denominations go through where where they'll, you know, is this particular sin still a sin in this day and age? Well, we don't think so, so therefore we're not going to teach that. And they'll use this passage to support it. Well, that's problematic because that's not what's being said at all. It, it sort of tears down the idea of, of how far maybe we can push this idea of, of, of church discipline being absolutely perfect and according to God's will every single time. Because, you know, this is the latter part of this is something he's expressing to the apostles. It's a comfort to them, just like we would say when you're over in John 16 and some of the things that are being said there about the perfect, the comforter guiding them into all truth. That's not, you know, having that direct relationship with the Holy Spirit where he was going to tell them exactly what to say, that that didn't, that didn't apply to every disciple that applied to the apostles. And so that's not saying you can't use this passage for church, for church discipline, but you need to be careful about the, 
the attitude that you approach it with and saying, well, Jesus is absolutely in the middle of this because everybody in the congregation agreed with us or all the elders. It doesn't mean that men aren't fallible. And the third problem is obviously the one that we started with, and that is that two people constitute a church, even if they are forsaking their duty to be together with their brethren and encourage and uplift one another, that they're still good in that because they're a church. So lots of problems with this passage, man. Right. Uh, Yanking it out of its context can really... Uh, make it bite you. So one that I thought of, that, that was one that I brought. Let me go ahead and get it up here. And let's let's. Uh, boy, I'd pay to hear. I'd pay one. to hear what you're gonna say. You'd pay to hear what I was gonna say. I, I'd pay to hear gonna. what verse you're bringing up. Well, lucky for you, all of biblically speaking's content is free. Whether you're watching us on YouTube or listening to us on the and podcast, that's a good thing. It, because, I think it's worth you know, every penny. Money is the root of all evil. Yeah, that's exactly the passage that we're going to. That money is the root of all evil. Is that what it says? That's oh, not wait, what it, it says, says, is it? For the love of money, First Timothy 6.10, is the root of all, all sorts. Kinds. Or some of your translations may say every kind of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, this was, this was my pet project to bring in here, so I'll, I'll kick this ball off. Now, this is right in the middle of some context where where Paul is warning preachers about their behavior, particularly as it comes to money and how the love of money can lead you into teaching a false doctrine. It He talks about there is some discipline in this passage about the rich and how they need to approach their wealth. We could go over, of course, to Matthew 19 and other passages where Jesus, the 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 account of the rich young ruler coming to Jesus is there. I think it's Luke's account says it's easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. But one of the problems that I see, I see this passage get used a lot to do is to sort of attack people for having wealth. Well, you obviously love money. That's why you're, that's why you have it. I would be careful about that. There's some wealthy people in the Bible uh, who obviously are very wealthy, who also love God a lot. The two that come to my mind are Cornelius and Barnabas. You know, Cornelius basically was donating money to a Jewish synagogue because he wanted to find God. So he's donating money to a Jewish synagogue in, in uh, Acts chapter 10. But then you've got Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who seems to be a wealthy man because he's got property to sell, and he's known for selling his properties off and bringing them to the apostles and laying the money at their feet. This mo- many people that I know that have the biggest problem with the love of money are not the wealthiest people. They're oftentimes the people with the least amount of yeah. money, and that they look at money as if it would be the cure for what ails them, the cure for all of their ills. Let's talk a little bit about this one. What's the danger in how we're using this passage? How might it cause us to misconstrue what God is doing with the blessings of material wealth, and what obligations does it give us? You know, uh, I'm glad you brought up Matthew 19. That really is kind of a parallel a parallel misunderstood passage where Jesus tells the rich man to give up all of his wealth. And people say, well, that's the only way we can be saved. And, and you brought up the answer I always bring up. Uh, the first thing I do is I say, wait a second. In the New Testament, there were many wealthy people uh, that later in the scriptures were told, uh, in fact, in fact, in First Timothy chapter six, we're told that wealthy people's expectation is not to give away their wealth, but to use it uh, in service to God. Um, you mentioned uh-huh. too. I was thinking of some others. I was thinking of Mark uh, in Acts chapter twelve. He w- he owned. Uh, uh, he was part of a family that was wealthy enough to have a house with servants. It was a large enough house that the church could meet in it. Um, in fact, you think of Philemon who has a house. I mean, every person who had a home that was large enough for the church to assemble in it, probably pretty well to do. Lydia, trader of purple, uh, had uh, servants in her home. Um, There's lots and lots of wealthy Christians. I think what you said, though, is important because I think a lot of times we think, well, if I'm poor, then I can't be guilty of the love of money. Uh, That is absolutely not the case. Possibly be guilty of the love of money. Yeah. Yeah. I think think we go back to the Old Testament and look at the prayer of Agur in uh, Proverbs. Uh oh, help me out here. Proverbs 30. Um, where we read yeah. The, yeah, we just yeah. Read the, I know a guy that wrote some really good Proverbs material. We just studied that on Sunday. <laughs> uh, his, 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 his middle name is not Tiberius, but I like to poke him like it is. Yeah, Tiberius <laughs> is a good middle name for that guy. Um, but, you know, one of the things about the prayer, 
the prayer of Agur is that Agur says, don't make me so rich that I, you know, that I, you know, become vain. But he says, don't make me too poor either because then I might curse you. Uh, the love of money hits everybody, rich or poor. Yeah. And it's different ways, you know, but it's, but it's true to say that some people, and I like what you said. You said some people, when we're really poor, we see money as the thing that's going to solve all our problems. Almost like faith. Mm -hmm. Almost like the love of money, the the worship of money, because money is the solution to every woe that I have. Yeah, yeah, and and that's really uh, you just have to read Ecclesiastes to find out that that's not really the case. In fact, Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes that it brings more problems. That my favorite one, and I'm trying to remember, the passage just flew right out of my head. But he says, you know, the one of the greatest uh, one of the greatest insults to a rich man is that he gains a lot of wealth and then his son is an idiot and he has to leave it all to him. Yes. I can't remember what, what passage that is in Ecclesiastes. Yes. It just flew right out of my head. But again, I've, I've known some very wealthy people. I, I won't share his last name, but his first name was Steve. Um, it, it was just embarrassing if I if I shared his last name. But he worshiped with us in a congregation I was preaching for. That man would bend over backwards to help anybody. That If a preacher needed... You know, two or three thousand dollars to go on a a trip to evangelize in South America. That if it couldn't be met, Steve would be the guy that wrote the check. That he would frequently help people out. You know, out of the goodness of his heart, out of the, out of his own pocketbook, to to meet their bills or or beat some financial need that they had. And I just I think that's a person that had a lot of wealth or has a lot of wealth, but he didn't love it. He loved God and the people of God more. And I think it was evident in the actions that he that he undertook with the wealth that God had given him. And that's that to me is he is always the person that I think of when I think of a modern day Barnabas is somebody that really, really does a lot of good with what God has given them. And to the point, again, I've known people that had very, very little money who would who were basically counting every bean at the end of the month just to have enough to eat who would who would sit around and complain about rich people loving money and they would sow discord among their brethren over that with that kind of attitude and I'm thinking I'm not saying the others don't have an issue with the love of money because I don't know them but I I know that you do based on yeah. based on your behavior based on your pattern of speech based on what you're allowing to manifest in your life that is diminishing your faith in God and increasing your animosity toward your brethren. Yes. yes. Anything else on that passage before we No, I think I think that's fantastic. I hope everybody takes it to heart. Okay, so last one, this is one that we kind of agreed on that man, even on the fun weeks we're trying to lose subscribers. I just I tell Yeah. You that, right? Yeah. If this one doesn't cost us some subscribers, it ought to at least uh, get people interested in some upcoming shows that we're going to have on what is faith, what is grace, and are we predestined for salvation? We've got all of those in the hopper, along with an episode on miracles, speaking in tongues and miracles, that that was actually a listener request. Could we do an episode on that? And it's one that that was for a time leading in that poll that we put up on the community side of the YouTube channel. Um, you know, one of the ones that people are really wanting to talk about right now, Brian, is alcohol. Yeah, that, another important you know, What one. should a Christian's relationship with alcohol be? So we're going to honor that request in a couple of weeks and do an episode on that. So we hope that you'll be ready for that. But the last passage we're going to talk about today, and this was Brian's idea, even though I think we both sort of uh, thought it was a great idea. Brian's the one that said it, so I'm going to let him read it, put it up on the screen here. Be turning your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And you're about to read everything you need to know about salvation in one verse. All right, go for it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And by that yes. one passage, I know there's nothing I can do to be saved. But if I just believe, that's enough, because it says so. Okay, so let's get into the problems with using this passage this way. Inherently, my first problem with this is, is we haven't defined faith, we haven't defined grace, and we yeah. haven't defined uh, works here. Right. Um, and isn't that always it? And this is something that, that I hope that you'll keep an open mind about if you're listening, that I can take you to passages in the Bible that absolutely say we're saved by grace. 
that we're saved by faith and that we're saved by responding to the call of grace in faith through baptism. And however we say that we are that we enter into this into this relationship of salvation with the blood of Jesus the bible expresses all three and therefore anything i teach on it shouldn't be dismissive of any of those things and we're going to do a whole episode on this in a few weeks um trying to do some episodes that will that will be thought provoking so i hope that you'll stick around for that one but what what's the knee jerk on this one brian yeah so uh this is the go to passage for so many protestants who want to say that uh, salvation is merely the act of belief, uh, faith equaling belief, which you said it exactly right. The biggest problem most people have in understanding scriptures is that they define uh, the words that are used by their own definition. They don't say what the Bible yeah. says grace is or faith is or works are. They take it to their own meaning. So what they want to say is the Bible says that the grace of God, this this unmerited favor is is an appropriate term but this unmerited favor with no strings attached and it's uh grace through faith which is just believing that there is a god or believing in Jesus Christ uh and it's not by works and defining works as anything we could do at all in order to be saved um mm-hmm. probably if you weren't if you knew nothing about this passage let's say you've heard this for the first time you'd probably right away say wait a second didn't you just contradict yourself if there's nothing I can do, wouldn't that include I can't even believe? Oh, good point. Yeah. Good point. Well, and, and so many people will, will who will quote this passage will say, all you have to do is say this specific prayer, mm-hmm. and that's what you have to do to be saved. And, and that's actually something you don't find in Scripture. You don't find a sinner's prayer in Scripture. Or you just have to open your heart and accept Jesus into your heart. Yeah. That... All of those are doing something. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, It's a marvelous thing that Jesus, and talking about the works that we needed to do to please God, he said, here is the work of God. You must believe. Jesus, John chapter 8, Jesus says that belief is a work. Um, Right away, creating a pretty big problem with this passage, that belief itself is a work. What we kind of understand is that the reason John Calvin would eventually decide, hey, we have no choice in salvation is because he started to realize if I believe that this passage is saying that I'm not, you know, there's no work I can do to be saved. And he kind of figured out, well, I guess belief is a work. Then he realized, well, God just saves us and we have no say so in the matter, you know, and then God condemns us. and We have no say so in the matter that, and for most people, they realize that's an outrageous idea, but it's a natural conclusion to the definition of this passage as we've said it. That if Ephesians 8 is saying there's nothing you can do, then Ephesians that includes... <laughs> oh, what did I say? Galatians? <laughs> you said Ephesians 8. If oh, your Bible Ephesians has 8. an Ephesians 8, please <laughs> yeah. return your Bible back to the manufacturer right. because it's exactly incorrect. right. Or share it with me. I'd be curious to see what Ephesians 8 says. <laughs> but uh, here we've got up before us... Please open us, your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 7. <laughs> that's right. Uh, here, here we've got before us uh, our passage in John chapter 6 where uh, I think I said John 8 earlier. John chapter six, where Jesus says, here's the work of God, believe. That's that's work. Um, that's a deed that is done. So, so Jared, you said it right. What we're going to have to do is step back and say, so that first of all, this passage is contradicting itself if it's saying what some people think it says. And it contradicts a lot of other passages too. Things that say such mm-hmm. like work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, you know, things that speak about the nature of these things. So, so Jared, how would we define works and faith uh, based on the context and grace. Well, and you know I love context. And I know a preacher who's mediocre at best, who happened to preach two sermons on this this past Sunday, um, starting in Ephesians chapter 1. And they both happen to be up on at the website of the congregation that I preach at, that uh, the Fifth Street Church of Christ in Beaverton, Oregon. But in chapter 1, Paul starts with how they can have confidence in their salvation, and none of it has anything to do with them. It has to do with the fact that God predestined that those who would love him and those who would come to him, he predestined that he would save them through Jesus. And he said he did this before the foundation of the world. He laid out this plan. He was going to adopt them. He was going to forgive them of their sins. He was going to—he uh, he was even going to make them an example 
to others of what the grace of Jesus looked like so that those who heard first could point others to the gospel of Jesus and they could be converted by the gospel. So he predestined all of that. Predestination in this chapter has nothing to do with God appointing specific individuals, has everything to do with God predetermining a plan. So Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is not really a plan of salvation. It is a reminder that, as he would say in the first two verses of Ephesians 2, that we have been transferred, that we used to be in the world, we used to walk according to the pattern of the world, that we have been transferred from death into life. And that has only happened because Jesus is the sacrifice of God. And you have to have faith in the grace of God. And that's the only way that you get seated in the heavenly places. And that continued trust in God's grace is what's preparing you for his real point of the letter, which doesn't show up until chapter 6, to engage in the spiritual warfare of everyday life, trusting in the armor that God has given. And until you understand that he's not laying out a pattern of salvation, because as Brian's already pointed out, belief is a work that we've seen in over in in uh, John chapter 6, that we that we have seen that he said in Philippians chapter 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's not saying that there is no effort exerted by anyone in, or in their salvation. It's just their salvation is not attributed to their work. It is attributed to the grace of God. So you know, my parallel passage that I love and, and what you're saying is so important. You said uh, belief is a work. Am I saved when I believe? No, we know even demons believe and are lost. Uh, we could talk about confession. Confession is a work. It's something I'm doing. If I'm doing it, it's a work. Am I saved the moment I confess Jesus is Lord? You know, demons also confess Jesus was Lord. Uh, no, that doesn't save me. They even tremble before him. Yeah, they even tremble for him. Uh, repentance. Jesus talked about the works worthy of repentance. Repentance is a work. Am I saved the moment I repent? No. Uh, but here's what's interesting. Baptism. Titus chapter three. Uh, I know you were going to go there and I'm going to take it from you. I'm going to steal your thunder. Titus chapter 3. That's okay. We're going to do a whole one on Titus 2 in a, in a yeah. few weeks. Well, I'm coming back to Titus 2, too. He says in Titus chapter Don't. 3 and verse 4, he says, When the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Now, I'm going to pause here for a second. When the kindness of God and our love appeared in chapter 2, verse 11, he says the same thing. But instead of the word kindness and love, he says grace. grace. He says, when the grace of God that brings salvation appeared to men. So so we're talking about grace. And it appeared to all men, not just all some, men. to yeah. all yeah. men. Verse yeah. 4. Sort when of the, presents a problem for predestination, too. Yes. It, oh, by the way, we're killing that one right now. Uh, when the grace of God appeared, what, what does that mean? He says, how did the grace of God manifest itself? Well, he says in verse 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Okay, his grace, his mercy. Uh -huh. uh, well, how did he save us? Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Wait a second. I've heard those terms before. A washing of water and a renewing of the Holy Spirit. What was it that Paul Peter said on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, verse 38? Oh, yeah. Repent. Be baptized. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here is Titus. Mm -hmm. uh, Here's Paul telling Titus, hey, God's salvation by grace wasn't by works. It was by baptism. You know, it's kind of neat. Even in our language, we say, I believe. I confess, I repent, I hear, but we don't say I baptize. We say I am baptized. Was uh, even in our in our language, we're acknowledging that it's not our act that it is being done to us. Now here is Paul telling Titus, who's doing the work in baptism? Well, Jared, you've baptized a lot of people. Did you do anything special that took away their sins when you baptized them? Are no. you saying nothing that you did in that moment was uh, saving? Uh, it wasn't for me. Yeah, I, I baptized people in swimming pools, ponds, baptistries, you name it. And it wasn't our power. I'm doing. Yeah, it wasn't our power. So who was doing the work in the moment of baptism? Because it wasn't the person because they were yeah. being baptized. Peter that's the is grace of God that's doing yeah, the work. Paul is saying that in that moment, God did the work. Well, and the same thing goes for Ephesians too. I mean, you mentioned that you know it shatters that image in Titus too that the grace of God is 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 doing this. But in Ephesians two, it shatters that same image that it it's not that there isn't. I mean, I, I like how you emphasize repentance as a work. I don't know anybody who doesn't think that somebody who's coming to Christ needs to repent. That was Jesus's whole message: repent for the kingdom right. of. of of heaven is at hand that if you're going to say repentance is a work you know bring forth the fruit that's meat for repentance then i have to look at that and say okay what i'm really struggling with is this 
I don't think people are being dishonest about this. I, I think people don't think hard enough about it. Right. That oftentimes what we do is we we say, well, this seems like a work to me. We don't think that, okay, the Bible does say belief is a work. It does say repentance is a work. It does say confession. You know, confession is something that I'm doing. It doesn't mean without effort. It means right. without earning. And right. it's still right. a gift. It's always a gift. The grace of God is a gift. And really, I think Peter summed it up best in First Peter chapter 3 when he calls, when he says baptism is not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. It is the appeal to God for a good conscience. Well, man, it feels like we just got started. This was a fun episode. Yeah, I had uh, more I wanted actually, to say, but we're out of time. Yeah, I mean, we're over an hour now. I'm going to have to cut yeah. this one down, too. Yeah. So, um, But anything else you want to wrap up on? Anything? No. Anything, uh, uh, not, no, I, like I said, I have a lot more I want to say, but we've said it. Uh, and I think that there are lots of passages in the Bible that people misuse. We've talked about context, and we've talked about defining words. And that's that's the way that a true Bible student's going to going to be safe from... Uh, getting misled by the meaning or the context of a statement in the Bible. Absolutely. And that has a lot to do with Bible study. So if you're going to be a good Bible student, you want to know how to study the Bible, you want to know how preachers look at the Bible, or how they should look at the Bible, the first thing you look at is the context, the next thing you look at is the meaning of words. third thing you need to look at is the audience that it's being said to. And, and does that apply to us specifically? As we talked about some passages today, were written specifically to the apostles or to... Uh, those in Jerusalem who are about to go off into captivity. So, I mean, we might want to be careful about the audience as well. So before you go and start making a claim about your Bible, you need to make sure that you know it well enough to talk about it. And that only comes with disciplined study of the Word of God. And I hope we've encouraged you to do that today. Well, that's where we got to wrap up, buddy. From all of us here at Biblically Speaking, we want to say have a good day and God bless.